Code Fun Podcast Network. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your project to the next level. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash sustain. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source zookeeping. No, code, code. How do we do this for the long term? What does sustainability even mean anyway? What does it mean to have a really awesome project? Today, we have a really cool guest who spent a lot of time thinking about this as part of his work. Before we get to him, we have a few other panelists. We have Eric Berry. Hey, everybody. Justin Dorfman. Hello, hello. And... I am also here, and we have Bogdan Vasilescu. Yay. Just gave hey, us a thumbs up. It's great to be on. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. You have to pronounce it in the true Romanian way, which is Bogdan. Did I, did I mess up already? No, I'm just making a point just for the fun of it. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> very, very nice. Noted. I didn't expect anybody would know how to pronounce uh, my name with a Romanian pronunciation. Eric you know is that, a very cultured individual. I don't think you know. I, that. Dude, I'm so cultured. I feel so, so important on this call right now because I knew how to pronounce his name out of the gate. So I stayed in Romania for a month and I learned the name Bogdan. I also learned Strapa and Stinga, I think, which is left and right. And I also learned that there was a girl at the mall that really wanted to date an American and I was too afraid to ask. So... That's like the extent of my Romanian. So let me. Let you me blew now. it. I blew I, it. I, I did blow it. Yeah. Uh, be, before we spend the entire call, like putting Bogdan in, in a box as a Romanian, I want to make sure that we put him in his proper box as an assistant professor at Carnegie Mellon University. Yes. Who's Absolutely. super important yes. and awesome, lives in Pittsburgh, and has been working really hard at the Strudel Lab. Can you tell us a bit more about what you build there with your culinary expertise? <laughs> yeah, we actually we do build strudels on occasion on like you know social events and whatnot. But mostly we do research, trying to understand and I mean ideally we'd like to help open source maintainers sustain their projects and you know, contribute to this. I don't know that we've, we're there yet, but we're certainly spending a lot of time thinking about open source and open source sustainability and trying to understand what are the barriers and sort of what we could do to maybe improve on this. But you know before we start. I really want to give a shout out to my students and collaborators here. I'm on the show, obviously, right now talking to you, but this is not my work. It's not, it's not me right, doing all of this cool stuff. It's, it's really my students that are doing all of this cool stuff. So you know, they're the ones that, that should be on the show instead of me. I love that. I love that. So are you first author or last author on most of the papers that we're going to be looking at today? I, I'm, I'm last author. Just how the convention is. I'm the you know, faculty member and a senior author. And then uh, the students are usually the first authors on all of these papers. Awesome. That is so cool. And we can give shout outs when we talk about it. So we, we have this list of, of papers that you sent along. Oftentimes, old listeners, we ask uh, our participants to say, what do you want to talk about? And the Bogdan has this really awesome just paper after paper of like, this is how these things work. This is how these things work. And so this podcast will probably be us like diving into at least some of those. So I know Justin really wants to get to one paper, which you've titled helpfully, How to Not Get Rich. So I haven't read it because I, I'm not interested. So can you tell me a bit more about what, what's in this paper? 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. So th- this came out of you know, our curiosity around sustainability or ways to sustain models to sustain open source projects. Right? And you know, we noticed by just sort of reading and, and listening to what people are saying and, and listening to what they're uh, reading, what they're writing online, there's this huge patchwork of models for sustaining open source projects. I, I'm sure you guys know all about this because some of you are involved in these personally. And the question for us is always, you know, does it work? Right. So we know we have all these options, but do they actually work and how effective are they? And you know, just, just in terms of understanding the uh, environment here, the, the landscape a little bit, how widespread are they? How popular are they? Right. Before we even get to ask questions about how effective they are. So here we focused on donations as one mechanism, hopefully, to help open source maintainers sustain their projects. And we tried to understand at GitHub scale, we went over all of GitHub, okay? That's like 78 or so million repositories on GitHub that we had uh, in our database at the time when we did this work. And we went over all of GitHub and we tried to figure out which donation platforms are people using and so how effectively are they using them? Are they getting any donations? Are they getting any money? What are they asking money for? What are they spending money on? Is there any evidence that this actually helps people? Can we see any of this in, in the data that's out there? And just to give you a sense of kind of how we do this, that we, we try to look at, at data whenever we can from you know, the history and the, of these uh, projects and the repositories and so on. And we try to do this over large samples, right? So we try to see if, you know, you, you can imagine that you have stuff that works. You can have a model that works for one project. You can have a different model that works for a different project for all kinds of reasons. That doesn't tell us much. So there's a lot of, you know, variation at the individual project level and in how uh, things work or, or, or don't work. What we're trying to do is to look at the entire ecosystem, right? That's why we're looking at the whole, the whole platform. And we're trying to see if there's anything that so consistently shows up in the data. Is there any signal there that, that shows that something is really effective over a large number of projects? That's kind of the flavor of all the research that we do, and you know, in this project and other projects too. That is awesome. 80 million repos is a lot of a lot of repos. How do you even get that data? So we actually didn't clone all of them. We had a copy of all of the NPM packages on disk. We were able to, to clone those. There's about half a million of those that have repos on GitHub. We had all of those locally, but for all the other ones, up to 80 million or so, we use the GitHub API to query for... Actually, here we looked for traces in the readme files. We saw that people mentioned the platforms that they're soliciting donations through. They mentioned those on their readme files. Sometimes there's badges, sometimes there's sponsor links, things like this. And we crawled all of the readme files of all of these repos on GitHub through the GitHub API. I'm sure they really loved you. <laughs> How many times have they reached out and said, yo, stop it? Um, they haven't, actually. Uh, they've been very kind to us. I think because we don't abuse their API quota and the rate limit, they don't complain too much. And you know, they, sort of, they, they like the work that we do, and they've never complained to us directly. In the paper, you mentioned a service that forgot what it was, but basically it is like a mirror of GitHub. What was that again? Yeah, huge shout out to these people too. It's called GH Torrent. Uh, yes, short for GitHub. This is a project, a research project that came out of TU Delft in the Netherlands. It was started by George Gusius, a, a researcher there. 
uh, about 2012 or so, and continuously crawls the GitHub event stream and populates a database with all of this metadata about you know, projects and people and commits and issues and what have you. And all of this is available to researchers. It's all on the web. You could go to ghtorrent.org to read more about this. Yeah, that's a really great thing. I was thinking about donating my key, you know, the API key, but I'm like, if I lose my account, I'm going to be really, really screwed. So I, I decided not to, but I think, you know, you mentioned that in your paper. I think services like that really do enable really great research, like what you're doing. And one other paper, or I guess it's like a website that you built. It says 46% of NPM packages show a badge. Mm. I, I thought it'd be like more like 98, but how long did it take to get that number? You know, how, what, can you describe the process of how do you compute that? How do you talk to Carnegie Mellon or any sponsor to say, hey, I think this is going to be a really great way of showing whatever you need to show? Okay, yeah. So, so kind of in general, what we do is we write grant proposals. That's kind of what academics do, uh, researchers. They write grant proposals to different funding agencies describing research that we think would be worth doing and, you know, as much detail as we can kind of before doing it, right? And we write these to all kinds of funding agencies. We write them to the National Science Foundation in the U.S. We write them to foundations like the Sloan Foundation, for example. All kinds of funders exist that kind of support research. And once your proposal gets funded, you get to hire students that do all the school work that, that I mentioned. You get to actually do all this stuff. So that's what happened here as well. We had some funding and we sort of hired some summer students. Actually, that was a summer project, but done by an undergrad over a few months, the, the NPM badges project that you mentioned. So it was a fantastic summer project. And what we do is we start from this list of all the NPM packages that are out there. There's, there's an endpoint on the NPM website where you can actually download a whole list of packages. And then we try to match all of those to repos on GitHub. Often people link their GitHub repo in their package.json file. Other times, you know, there's other ways to link them. But given this list of all the NPM packages that exist you know, at some point on NPM, we then trace those back to GitHub repos and once we have that, we could do all these analyses over stuff that is in the repos. And in this case, the badges that you mentioned were all embedded in the README files. And this was really cool because we could sort of go over all of these README files of you know, hundreds of thousands of uh, NPM packages, and we could figure out which badges they're using. But even more importantly, we could figure out when they started using them, right? Because everything is versioned. So we could figure out what was the actual commit that introduced all these different badges, if there were later commits that remove some and so on, like we could do all of this analysis over time. And this is kind of how we uh, ended up at that, at the number you quoted, where we were able to so just reason about the whole NPM ecosystem, or at least as much as we could match on GitHub, we could find on GitHub in terms of how popular different badges are. Back to the, the scraping of the GitHub readmes and these NPM module badges, maybe I missed it, but can you help me understand exactly what you're looking for? On those, like I understand the badges and the need for badges and why people use them, but how does that translate to the topic of how not to get rich with open source? Okay, so what would you say is the defining feature of GitHub? A question for you. Turning open source into a social network. 
Yes. Okay. So that's one. There's another one that I'm thinking of here, um, namely transparency, right? Thinking of kind of what is so fundamentally different between GitHub as a platform and say SourceForge as a platform or whatever was before. I argue that's transparency. The fact that you have these so social media-like profile pages for projects, for people, for everything, right? So everything is all of a sudden with the emergence of GitHub, super transparent, right? You can, with just a few clicks, you can get this entire uh, set of information for any individual person with an account there, for any project. You can have access to the entire history. You can have all this sort of summarized, aggregated information about uh, what somebody did, sort of what things they contributed to, how popular they are, that kind of stuff, how widely used something is more recently. So all of these things you can, you can just see, right, with, with just on the homepage. That's arguably something that's fundamentally different about GitHub compared to stuff that was before platforms like GitHub. And it's not just GitHub, you know, things like GitLab and Bitbucket and all these other platforms are similar in that sense, right? They have all of this information just sort of very prominently displayed. Okay, so now here's where the sustainability angle comes in. It's interesting to us, and that's what we're curious and we're studying, how people react to this surge of information compared to before. Okay, so now, uh, you know, you had to say, if you think about it previously, if you had to reason about how active or popular or sustainable an open source project is, you had to dig through lots of not very salient information. You had to maybe do some analyses yourself. You had to sort of dig through multiple layers of things. You had to spend some effort and time thinking about this. Now stuff is just in your face. Okay? How many stars a repo has or how many downloads a repo has or how many contributors it has or when was the most recent commit or all this stuff is in your face. Right? So what we're, what we're thinking here and we're observing through this series of, of uh, studies that we've done and other people have done too, is that uh, people's behavior changes when you have this salience of information. And this is where the badges come in too. We are seeing, for example, in that, in that project that people react to these badges in, in ways that are interesting and probably they would not have behaved in this way if it wasn't for these badges, because the information that these badges make transparent would have otherwise not, as, not have been as easily observable. It would have been more hidden. So people would have had to dig and, and click and, and you know, read and so on through layers of things to figure out something about you know, whether your dependencies are up to date or whether your build is broken. Right? I would have to, to go dig through your CI and so on and figure that out have to look at your dependencies to figure that out. Now it's in my face and I, I can make all of these inferences instantly about you know, the quality, the attractiveness, the popularity, the sustainability, if you will, of your open source project. But just looking at all of these things that are staring at me and badges are one example of a, a thing that is staring at me as a consumer of this information, as a potential contributor to these projects or as a user of open source software, just staring at me, they're in, in my face. So, sorry, Justin, I know you're queuing up a question, but I just want to add a follow-up on there. So, I understand what you're saying is that these badges add almost validity and, and gives the developer a sense of, okay, I can trust this project because it appears to have an ecosystem around it. But how does that tie in with donations and how does that tie in with your report? So, okay, so they're not directly uh, related. They were separate research projects. The, the project on badges wasn't directly related to the donations project, but it was more in the sense of badges 
by themselves, you know, as, as tiny and insignificant as they seem, they are a tiny mechanism that also contributes to some of these sustainability uh, issues. So just to give you an example, if what we were seeing in the data, like whenever people would show these CI and or test coverage badges on their projects that would show whether the build failed or passed and or kind of what is the, the value of the whatever test coverage metric they were, they were computing, Whenever people do this, on average, people submitting PRs, they are more likely to add tests to their PRs when the stuff is being displayed, right? Because then there's some feedback loop that's instant and very visible, okay? Because you see that the value of your coverage metric, for example, goes up when you, you, know, when you add tests and so on. And you see that it will go down if you don't, right, over time. So people react to these things that are in their face. And, and in this case, arguably, right, people adding tests to their PRs is a, is a good thing that, that you would want to encourage as an open source maintainer, and that would help with the sustainability of your project, would help with the quality of your code and so on. So that's kind of where that ties into sustainability, just as an example. You know, while you were talking about all that, I was thinking subconsciously, every time I go to a repo, this is what I do, stars last commit, and if the build passes or fail. And I just like, when you said that, I was like, oh my God, that's exactly what I do. So first of all, I apologize for putting in another research paper that caused confusion, Eric, but I think out of that, a really great conversation came. But thank you for saying that because like, I had chills when you were talking about that. I was like, oh my God, that's what I do. Did, Eric and Richard, do you do that as well? Or it's just me? Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, definitely. And that actually kind of shines a light. That should be part of the sustainability checklist. If you want to have a sustainable open source project, you probably need badges. You probably need a CI indicator. Those are core to making it so that that project becomes adoptable with other developers. Fascinating, fascinating study. I'd love to jump back a little bit. Let me explain why I'm so interested in the donation side. I noticed that you referenced a black duck study that was performed. It's very interesting to me because I also believe that donations are a terrible, terrible way to sustain open source. Now, there are solutions like Open Collective, which, you know, in full disclosure, I'm, I'm one of the board members of there, but Open Collective is a tool to allow donations, which absolutely needs to exist. But the problem is, is that donations primarily come, at least significant donations have to come from corporations. However, corporations when they donate money, it comes out of a certain budget where it's a charity budget. And unless they can donate with a 501c3, which will allow it to be tax deductible, it's definitely a loss for them, at least a financial loss for them. So what's your takeaway on this? Because I'm intimately familiar with the contents of, of that document, at least I believe I am. What's the takeaway and why is donations a terrible way to fund open source? So I'm really glad you asked this, and I'm glad you mentioned corporations here, because I wanted to ask you all the same question back while we were having this conversation. You know, one of the things that we are wondering when we are studying these donations is the question of fairness. And something that we seem to find when we read blog posts and so on, listen to talks and podcasts by open source maintainers, is often complaints that users of open source or corporate users of open source software are getting a lot of value and benefit from all of this stuff. And you know, they're not always contributing back. So the question is, 
know, what is fair here, right? So like if, if you are a user of open source software and everybody is, and if you are a big corporation that uh, makes a lot of money uh, and you are using open source software internally or you're building on open source software, what have you, you know, is it your responsibility maybe to, to give something back? So how do people think about this? What's fair here? That's something that is on our mind, kind of trying to figure out what, what would be fair in, in, this, in this environment where you have people that volunteer their time. Lots of people volunteer their time, it seems, uh, to maintain open source. Most people, in fact, according to all these surveys that uh, came out recently, there's more people that volunteer their time maintaining open source than there are uh, being paid to maintain open source, right? So you have all these people volunteering their time on the one hand, and you have all kinds of corporate actors benefiting from this on the other hand. You know, should you maybe expect more of these users rather than you know, rely on these uh, small, low-level things like donations? So this is where it comes back to donations. You're asking why we claim that donations are not effective or in our paper, why we conclude this. It's because on the one hand, we're seeing that very, very few projects relatively to all the open source projects out there even ask for donations in the first place. And from those that do ask, even fewer still, a very tiny fraction of those that do ask, which is by itself a very tiny fraction of all the ones that are out there, get any money at all or get any non-trivial amounts of money. So we're saying that uh, they don't work because it's just, uh, we don't see any evidence in the data that they're uh, popular and widespread enough yet and that they are effective enough at attracting sufficient amounts of funding to actually make a difference. We do see on an individual project level examples of projects that have been very successful and have attracted huge amounts of money through donations and are able to fund full-time uh, engineers to work on, on those projects. We do see some of these, but by and large, most projects get very little money this way. Uh, it doesn't seem to be working. I mean, I always seen donations as just one channel. You know, there's obviously a lot more you can do for sustainability in terms of getting money. Obviously, not it doesn't apply to all projects, but any project that needs that reaches millions of people definitely shouldn't just focus on donations. There's other ways to make money. That's for another episode, but just need to point that out. I was curious when the follow-up study of how to get rich with open source is coming out and what that might contain. The things, yeah, it's a good question. So one thing that we that puzzled us at the end of the study that you, you mentioned was this disconnect between what we were seeing in, in the open source world in terms of how people are asking for donations on the one hand and what people are doing otherwise with, with, you know, in, in the real world with charitable organizations and so on, asking for donations on the other hand. And it seems like there are lots of things that people are doing in, in real world organizations that are relying on charitable donations that open source projects aren't doing just yet. So in, in that sense, actually, Open Collective is a really good example here because it's among the platforms that we studied, it's the one that was maybe the most transparent. It was very transparent in, in terms of what people are asking donations for and all the transactions were, were public and so on. So there's this public accountability, but there are still issues that we, are, that we think can be improved. So just to give you a couple of examples, one is 
In the real world, it seems that, you know, whenever people or organizations ask for donations, the ones that are successful and effective are very clear about what the goals of this fundraising campaigns are. But in the real world, organizations asking for charitable donations are very clear about what the goals of these campaigns are. And we're not seeing that in open source just yet. Some projects are doing this. They're being very clear and explicit about what the the funding will be used for. And they're doing this on their, say, open collective uh, pages or what have you. But by and large, people aren't. So this sort of very nebulous, uh, please support us. Uh, We're asking for donations. But it's not obvious to a reader or potential donor why they're asking for this, what they're, they're looking to spend the money on. And you know, the research uh, shows in the real world that organizations can be more effective at raising uh, donations when they're more explicit about what their goals are. That's one thing. Another thing is, it seems again that in real world charitable organizations, those that are more effective at raising donations do some kind of reporting back of not just what the donations were spent on, but sort of what the effectiveness of the entire process is. If you look at sort of, I don't know, like NGOs or nonprofits in general, they often report on their website, among other things, you know, out of every dollar that they raise, how much of it goes back into sort of programming or whatever that that directly benefits their, their communities or their users versus how much of it is just lost on, on overhead-like things. And so that's another thing where we're seeing that open source projects could improve. Uh, more transparency on the spending side, and so it's just more reporting on the, the just effectiveness of these things. And the research in the real world, again, shows that the organizations that do this more transparently, they tend to be more effective at raising donations. So this would be just some examples of things that may work in open source as well. With over 300 tools and warehouses, Segment connects your stack with one API and can get you up and running faster with our historical data replay feature. Segment is a customer data platform that helps companies harness first-party customer data. Their platform democratizes access to reliable data for all teams and offers a complete toolkit to standardize data collection, unify user records, and route customer data into any system where it's needed. More than 20,000 companies like Intuit, Hinge, Instacart, and Levi's use Segment to make real-time decisions, accelerate growth, and deliver compelling user experiences. For more information, visit Segment.com. This is probably one of my favorite, I know we say this a lot, but it's probably one of my favorite interviews uh, because it's so topical and so uh, you're clearly defining what developers need to do to help themselves. I'm wondering, did you talk with GitHub? Did you discuss this with them? Because it seems like this is kind of the path that they've taken. They, it seems their, their GitHub sponsors actually follows the same way of like saying, this is why I need the funds. And this is, this is my accountability to those. Because I, I do several donations on GitHub sponsors. And every month I get a report from everybody I sponsor with, what did I do? How are we doing? And to me, that just reinforces my donation. And I mean, you know, 15 bucks a month for donations is, it's, I mean, it's more than Netflix. So, I mean, of course, that's, that's kind of a deal. <laughs> but, but knowing that these people are using those funds. So, I guess let me shut up and get back to my question. Did you talk with them? Was there any conversations with you and Devin about this? I'd love to find out. We haven't yet. No, the, the paper uh, just came out. The paper actually was accepted for publication at one of our academic conferences, one of the venues where we published, the International Conference on Software Engineering. And that was scheduled to happen at the end of May this year, so just in in a couple of weeks. 
it got canceled or rather switched to an online model and it's going to happen later in, in July uh, because of the coronavirus. But the paper hasn't even sort of officially been published yet. It's just been accepted for publication. And that's a preprint that you were reading, which we haven't had a chance to talk to, to GitHub or pretty much anyone else yet about this stuff. Was it you on Twitter that tagged SustainOSS? I found the paper somehow and it was through Twitter. Was it you or a colleague? I was wondering that too. I was wondering how you guys found it. I have no idea. No, it wasn't me. Okay. Because I've never really, I'm a high school graduate. I, you know, I, haven't, I haven't done my Ivy League yet. You know, I'll get there one day. But I couldn't like stop. Actually, I'm not going to lie. I had to stop multiple times while reading the paper because I was like, oh, that'd be a great idea. So I'd like pause it. You know, I'd put a bookmark in and then, you know, spend two or three hours doing sustained stuff. So I just, your, your paper really inspired me. I just want you to know, like, we're very excited to have you on this episode. And I just, you know, as Eric alluded to earlier, it's like, every time we have a guest on, it's like, oh, this was the best guest. Oh, this was the best guest. Like, Get, well, congratulations. I, you are the best guest. <laughs> well, I also want to give credit. And, and, and I know you mentioned it early in the talk, but your students are phenomenal. And if your students are listening, thank you. Thank um, you. This is important work that you're doing for the community. This is really, really important. A lot of the reports that I read are so stagnant. I mean, I think the, the Black Duck report was from 2011. So seeing these type of reports, this type of information come out right now, it's so critical. So to everybody working with Bogdan, thank you so much for this. This is really important work that you're doing. Well, thank you. Thank you. I'm really glad to hear you You found it to begin with. Uh, it's sort of rare that people actually find our, our stuff and, and read it. So thank you for that. But really, thanks to Cassandra Overney and Jens Meinicke, who are students on the paper. They're the ones that deserve all this credit, not me. And my collaborator, Christian uh, Kestner from CMU. So I have a, a question, which is, isn't a nice one, but it's been going through my head. The paper title says a lot, right? How to not get rich. Donations don't work. They don't lead to you being able to rise above. I mean, yes, you can sometimes occasionally fund a single project. Sometimes you can fund a part-time contributor. Sometimes you can get, you know, coffee funds, right? I myself, I had a Patreon until very recently where, you know, people gave me enough to buy coffee once a month so I could go do that if I wanted. But I still have to work for capital. Right. And that's that's just how life is for me and how it is for a lot of open source people. And we donate our time lovingly because we love the work or because we have decided that this is worth our time somewhere back in the recesses of our subconscious. But I keep coming back to the idea of is there a light saying that, you know, you should even bother with donation models? Like, where's the good news? And I actually want to push back a little bit on your on your conclusion <laughs> that they they don't work. We're seeing that on, you're right. So you're seeing that on, we are seeing that on average, they don't work in the sense of that not enough money is raised to fund full-time engineers. But, you know, there's more nuance here. So one thing, first of all, it's not obvious, right? We, we don't know this from the data that we're looking at. It's not obvious that these projects needed more money than they're getting. But we, ju we just don't know. We, the researchers, don't know. Right. So you know, they might work, right? They might uh, be enough for whatever the needs of these maintainers are. We, when we're looking at this from the outside, we don't know. So we kind of, we're just observing that not enough money is raised for full time engineers on average, but it might be that enough money is raised for, I don't know, for uh, hosting services or servers or travel or stickers or t shirts or 
speakers at a conference or you know what have you, all kinds of community things. And the second thing is, you know, all of these other things that this money might come in handy for, like coffee, like you said, they may actually contribute to lowering people's stress and anxiety about, you know, why they're doing what they're doing. They might contribute to increasing their, uh, I don't know, uh, sense of, of excitement or their motivation for continuing to maintain these projects. They might just put a smile on their faces one day, you know, who knows, right? So they might work in ways that we cannot observe, right? So that's why I wouldn't actually go as far as, as concluding here very uh, clearly that they don't work because they just might work in ways that we aren't able to observe uh, in this data that we're looking at, right? So, you know, you have to uh, be aware of all of these limitations of the data that we're looking at. There's only so much we can see in the data that we're looking at. I love that answer. Thank you. And I'm sorry for giving you a bit of a straw man there. I just want to make sure that that happened. Eric, you have something to say? I do. And I, I you know, I speak with Henry Sue every now and then. We recently interviewed him. And when we look as a community, like who are some of the darlings of open source sustainability? Who's really succeeded in that area? Henry often comes up and he's even referenced in, in your document. But the thing that I, I was thinking the other day, I'm like, you know, Henry is brilliant, like a brilliant developer that should probably be making at least a quarter million a year minimum, right? And yet he's stuck. He's stuck in this position of maintaining Babel and he's fully funded himself. But, you know, I think a lot of developers look and I, I'm guilty of it. You look at these guys who have created the successful path of funding for themselves through donations. And you think, oh, this is great. But when you actually look at it, he's probably getting paid 50 to 70% less than he could anywhere else. So even then, I don't think that donations will ever lead to richness, even in the most ideal scenario. So the question is like, who is doing it the right way? What is the ideal scenario? Can you provide any examples of like, this is probably the right way to go about doing? Not not easily, but I I, want to say one thing. I, I don't think expecting donations to be the only way to sustain an open source project is the right approach. That's just my feeling from, from thinking about this for a while and looking into data here for a while. I think the people that are, and this is just me speculating, I don't have any scientific evidence here, but I think that the people that are doing it right, as you say, are the people that are trying to you know, combine all of these different ways to sustain their projects. And this is very context dependent. It's, it's sort of not one size fits all. It, it's, you know, some people are happy to do some consulting on the side or what have you. Some people are maybe not comfortable asking for donations, so that's not a viable option for them and so on. So it's very context dependent, but I think just sort of putting together all the ways that one is comfortable with doing is is probably a, a better approach here than just sort of relying solely on donations or expecting that this will get you the whole way. Awesome. I want to, I want to draw attention because you, we focus a lot on the, just the donations model, but donations is just one part of open source, right? There's a lot more to what open source is. And you actually have some really awesome other papers that also sort of deal with sustainability from another angle. So I'm talking about why do people give up flossing, a study of contributor disengagement at open source, or there's another one going further together or farther together, sorry, the impact of social capital on sustained participation in open source. Can you tell me a bit more about what makes people stay in open projects and what makes people disengage? Yeah, 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 definitely. So that's kind of the other side of the sustainability research that my, my lab is doing is looking at communities or people uh, rather than looking at projects as the unit. 
And that's where this line of research that you were asking about comes from. And you know, what we're seeing in, in the studies that you mentioned are a few things. On the one hand, we're seeing that you know, there's evidence, even in this trace data, in this data that we're looking at, there's evidence that the community is feeling or being part of a community actually makes a difference. Right? I, I know that people always say this, right? And you know, it's sort of a feel-good thing to, to say that you know, we're all part of a community and so on. And it, it feels like it should matter. We're actually seeing evidence in the data that it matters. We're seeing that you know, people that are more embedded in these communities that have more cohesive social networks, they tend to work with more of the same people over time to build these relationships and these communities they tend to stay around longer. And we're seeing this over large samples. Again, that's kind of the flavor of the work that we're doing. And we're seeing this even when controlling for other confounding uh, factors in the data. But it's still the case that these variables that relate to, to building social capital, to building community, they, they, they matter. They make a difference. They help explain why some people on average stay engaged longer than others. That's, that's one, one of the lines of research you mentioned. And then in the other one, in the why do people give up flossing paper, there we looked at a couple of things. So that's kind of trying to, to, again, find some evidence in the data for something that we hear open source maintainers talk about a lot online, which is this burden of having to deal with all of these support requests and, and how that is sometimes overwhelming. There's a lot of these sometimes, or even when there's not a lot of these, there uh, maybe the tone of some of these support requests is not always ideal or what the maintainers were expecting. You know, the, the analogy that I like, I like to make is people volunteer their time to build open source and maintain open source, and they put this out there for free. And, you know, we see occasional users of open source that treat this as a, as a paid subscription service. You, you, you treat open source maintainers like uh, you treat Comcast or what have you. Yeah, you call to complain when uh, something is going wrong and you expect to be compensated, that kind of stuff. So kind of forgetting that a lot of what people do is in their spare time and it's sort of just put out there hoping that it's, it's helpful, but really not with any guarantee of service. So you know, we were looking at whether there's any evidence that people who are doing more of this grunt work, which is what we see some maintainers calling all of this stuff, they tend to disengage more rapidly than, than others, uh, just because it seems like it's not as rewarding maybe as those doing other kinds of things. And the other, the other thing that we looked at is resilience to external factors like people switching jobs or, I don't know, getting families or what have you, having a baby, this kind of stuff. So how all of these real world life events may impact people's resilience and so willingness to continue to contribute to open source. So you know, we're studying these variables, and this is kind of an ongoing project still. Uh, we had some evidence in the paper that you, you mentioned, but we're still kind of looking at these. That's excellent. Thank you. And it's, it's particularly pertinent right now. I mean, resilience is, is a lot of what people are thinking about, notwithstanding people who now all of a sudden have kids in their house and trying to figure out how to deal with that. I know that's the case with you. So thank you so much for taking the time to be on this podcast. For all you listeners, I'm afraid that's mainly just a taster. If you've done anything with academic research before, you know that the devil is in the details and there's so much to, to read about and just tangents to go off on. So like Justin Dorfman, I really encourage everyone to go 
read the papers and highlight them and take notes and then comment about them on Twitter or on the sustained discourse or somewhere so that we can keep that conversation going. For now, that's around the time we have today. So I want to thank you so much. If our listeners did want to keep reading, where could they find your research? Ah, thanks. Yeah, we, we publish all of these papers that we write. We publish PDF versions of all of these papers that we write on our the group's website. That's cmustrudel.github.io. You can find all of this stuff there. It's really accessible. There's often sort of data that we release together with the papers or presentations and so on to, uh, to make it easier for people to, to read. Sometimes we have infographics like the badges one that you guys saw earlier. No, we, we, we do our best to, to make this as accessible as possible. Excellent. And where can people find you? People can find me on the same website. I'm, I'm part of the, the group and they can find all the stuff that I do there. They can also find me on Twitter. I'm uh, B underscore Vasilescu on Twitter. And that's pretty much where I'm most active on social media these days. Awesome. Thank you. And a huge shout out again to uh, Cassandra and Jens and the other students who worked on this work. Super awesome. Yeah, this is, this is all their, their work. I'm just happy to uh, get a chance to talk about it, but they deserve all the credit. Excellent. Well, now it's time to shine some light on some other great people. So this is the spotlight section where we talk about cool projects that have helped us in the past. I want to throw a shout out to Shields.io. Uh, super awesome just tool for putting badges in your readmes. It's great. It's also run by mainly volunteers. I suggest you check it out, Shields.io. Eric, what do you got for us? I'm actually going to call out our sponsor today, Linode. You know, Linode has been the reason why the Sustained Podcast exists is because of Tyler Van Fossen and the Linode company. They have been so gracious with us trying out where we had no audience in the beginning. And they said, yes, we'll fund this. We will continue to sponsor you, even though you don't have an audience. And as our audience continued and continued to grow, They've stuck with us the whole time and, and they've just told us that they're renewing for another six months, which gives us at least another six months of life on this podcast. So to Tyler, to Linode, we thank you. And also Linode provides excellent, excellent Linux as a service. So in fact, our podcast is being hosted on Linode servers. So I wanted to call that out, thank them for their sponsorship and a very long future together. Yeah, awesome, I, and thank you so much, Linode. Thank you. Justin? I have to second what Eric said. Tyler at Linode, he's such a good guy and really, really believes in us, so thank you. For my spotlight, the Sustain podcast newsletter. I just launched it, and you can sign up at sustain.codefund.fm slash newsletter. Thank you so much. And finally, Bogdan. Thanks. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, there's one particular project that I want to give a shout-out to. And that's Jekyll Scholar. I don't know if lots of people know about Jekyll Scholar outside of academia, but this is a fantastic, fantastic tool. Okay? So, you know, you know academics, uh, or especially computer science academics, they write these research papers in LaTeX, and they manage their references in, in BibTeX, which is the sort of LaTeX bibliography format for, for citations and references. Okay, so what, what Jekyll Scholar does is it takes BibTeX style citations, which people have around anyway, because they write all these papers and whatnot. And it automatically converts that into a nice HTML web page with uh, to a nice list of references with hyperlinks to you know, the, the DOI or the paper itself or what have you. 
with a, like a call out for the, the BIPTEC key for other academics to just copy and paste into their papers when they're looking to cite your work and whatnot. This is a really fantastic tool. Um, you can see this in action on our, on our group website, for example. Right? If you go to cmustrudel.github.io slash publications, you'll see what the uh, output of Jekyll Scholar looks like when you just feed in a, a BIPTEC file as input. Like all of that is generated automatically. This is a fantastic resource. I think it's by Sylvester Keel. I want to give a shout out to them. That is the coolest thing I've ever seen. As a former academic, I'm, I'm now in love. I'm, I'm in love. Thank you so much for, for sharing and for being on here. And thanks. <laughs> That's all. All right. It's been great. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Fantastic. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. With 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia, with enterprise-grade hardware, S3-compatible storage options, and their next-generation network, Linode delivers the performance you expect at a price that you don't. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com sustain.